Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Hey, Scott, how come you don't see rocks in those pictures of the agapo that you share? Can I include them in my urban agapo aquarium? Ooh, good question. It's one we get all the time. And first off, of course, you can include them and do whatever the hell you want in your tank. There's no one telling you otherwise. However, if you're trying to faithfully represent one of these habitats in your own tank, you should listen to me for just a little bit here if you're interested. We've talked about this before, but I think it's a story worth telling again. It's a story of minerals, sediments, soils, and the processes which impact their formation. And it starts way up in the mountains. The whitewater rivers rush quickly down from the mountains of Peru and Bolivia, too rapidly for clay and silt to be stripped from them. And the rocks from these mountainous areas offer minerals and nutrients such as nitrogen attached to the silt and clay, and minerals like elite, montmorillite, hey, you know that one, that's the one that they sell those little rocks for, for shrimp, that are, um, uh, you know, and chloride. These are things that are nourishing to the lower lying areas. In these areas, numerous microbes and plants consume some of the nitrogen and while eaten by other organisms, convey what's left to the even lower lying forest habitats. The Amazonian Blackwater rivers are largely depleted in nutrients, having passed through the lowland forest soils as groundwater from which weathering has already occurred. Hydrodynamic, hydrogeomorphic processes, excuse me, which is a fancy way of referring to part of the stuff that makes rocks, are far less intense than they are in the upland mountainous regions, which the, where there's that abundance of minerals, nutrients, silts, and sediments. So in other words, rocks typically form high in the mountains. Most low-lying Amazon forests, you know, soils are really low in nutrients. The soils are nutrient-poor acidic types. And it's been suggested that most of the available nutrients are taken up by the root mats of really dense growth in these forested areas. And even the rainwater that falls provides little in the way of nutrient for the plants which grow there. Black water in areas like Amazonia, one of my favorite locales, of course, drains from an area known to geologists as the Precambrian Guyana Shield, which is comprised of sediments, which include things like quartz, sandstone, shales, and conglomerates, stemming from the formation of the Earth some 4.6 billion years ago. As a result of lots of geological activity over the eons, a nutrient-depleted soil type consisting of whitish sand we call podzol is formed. What little nutrient is there typically returns to the soils by means of leaf drop from the trees which grow there. And of course, when the water returns to the forest floors, residual nutrients are released into the waters too, and they're quickly utilized by the resident microorganisms. That's some serious nutrient cycling, isn't it? Now, I'm no expert or even a novice on geology or geochemistry or anything in that subject area for that matter. And I admit I kind of dozed through geology classes in college, much to the regret, you know, my regret now. Hot tip to young fish geeks, don't nap in geology or meteorology class. You might just need them someday. Anyway, based on my research into this stuff, it goes without saying that these are hardly conditions under which rocks as we know them could form. 
Sure, you might find the random rock in the Agapo that was washed down from the Andes or some other high country locale in these low-lying forests, but it most certainly did not evolve there. This also helps ex explain why the blackwater habitats are generally low in organic nutrients and minerals, right? So if you're really, really hardcore into replicating an Agapo, you probably want to exclude the rocks. Sorry to burst your bubble. And of course, there are some things which contribute to the overall habitat of blackwater environments, or specifically how they form. We get this question a lot too, and it kind of goes hand in hand. And of course, it goes back to geology again. Okay, don't start yawning on me yet. Let's just go back to those podzols one more time, okay? As I mentioned previously, podzols typically derive from quartz-rich sands, sandstone, or other sedimentary materials in areas of high precipitation, <clears throat> like the Amazon. Typically, podzols are kind of, well, shitty for growing stuff like food crops because they're sandy, have little moisture, and even less nutrients. A process called podzolization, you fucking kidding me? Well, what else would you call it, right? <laughs> it occurs where decomposition of organic matter is inhibited. Numerous microbes and plants consume some of the nitrogen, and while they're eaten by other organisms, they convey what's left to the even lower-lying forest habitats. Talked about that already before, haven't we? The Amazon, you know, blackwater rivers are largely depleted in nutrients, having passed through the lowland forest soils as groundwater from which weathering has already occurred. As a result, layers of acid orga acidic organics build up. So with these rather acidic conditions, a deficiency of nutrients further slows down the decomposition of the organics. So yeah, lousy soil for growing crops, but guess what? They form the basis of the substrate in many Amazonian aquatic habitats. And the water which flows over this soil is what we call black water, which achieves its unique color from a really high content of dissolved humic substances and fulvic acids, poor in nutrients and electrolytes. It's characterized by having sodium as one of its major cations, which are ions with fewer electrons than protons, which gives them a positive charge, which basically means it has low alkalinity. Typically, the pH and electrical conductivity values are less than 5 or 5 to 25 microsimians, respectively, which is pretty damn low. So to make a very long and intimidating technical story short, the physical characteristics of blackwater habitats are influenced as much by the geology as they are by anything else. So that also means tossing a bunch of alder cones into your tap water doesn't create blackwater. Just get that shit out of your head once and for all, okay? <laughs> when I was formulating our nature-based line of substrates, I know it sounds like a commercial here, but I want to tell you something about it. I spent a lot of time studying what I could of the geology in these regions and that you know, what led to those podzolic soil formations and so forth to see if I can create something that has similar characteristics. Because unfortunately, you just can't roll up to the local garden center, ask for, a, you know, a bag of podzolic soils and pick up a 50 pound bag. Trust me, I tried that. So I made my own version based on what I can understand from the geology of these areas. And it works pretty well. Yes, the soils and rocks have a profound influence on the formation of black water. That is to say, all of the dissolved humic substances which give these bodies of water their unique look are enabled by the geological properties of the regions. And from the trace element perspective, that's the reefer in me, only things like very small and very interesting um, minerals are present in you know, concentrations significant enough to influence the chemistry of these waters. Like the water has really low concentrations of trace elements. That's why you'll often see 
simple, fine, white silica-type sands on the bottom of so many Amazonian streams and rivers too, by the way, these blackwater rivers, because they originate way up in the mountains and they're transported by various means to the lowland areas. I mean, there's way more to the process than I can meaningfully convey here, but suffice it to say, it's an interesting study between the relationship of seemingly unrelated elements and how they come together, kind of like this blog, or this podcast, that is. Now, I admit, this is probably more than you'll ever care to know about how geology influences your favorite blackwater habitats, but I think it's important to at least understand that it's all kind of related. In fact, if this, it makes it a lot easier to understand how blackwater systems came to exist and function when you consider this big picture stuff. And of course, we're a hell of a lot more interested in the decaying vegetation, you know, the leaves, the twigs, and seed pods that influence the waters, right? Well, yeah. However, the rock and substrates we select for our tanks do play an important role in being able to create and maintain these kind of natural conditions in the aquarium. So using a quality substrate material which doesn't impact the pH or buffering capacity of the water to any great extent is really important. The reality is that just having an awareness of what goes on in the natural aquatic habitats that we love gives us a nice leg up on this stuff. You're obviously not going to use strong buffering substrates like aragonite or calcite or whatever to do the job in your low pH alkalinity blackwater aquarium, right? Of course not. Choose silica or commercially available silica-based substrates, which won't impact the pH and hardness. There's plenty of them out there. So by some major manufacturers, great stuff. So back to the question about utilizing rocks in your Rio Negro habitat or your agapo aquascape. If you're really, really hardcore about replicating an agapo, like one of those biotope freaks or even like me, you probably want to exclude rocks, especially if you're entering in one of those contests, those biotope contests, because these two judges would rightfully nail you in scoring, you know, for for uh, falling back on your natural inclinations as an aquascaper and tossing some rocks in. They just don't belong there. Now, I personally, of course, would likely be a bit more, you know, forgiving, which is completely, you know, what you'd expect from me, and that's why I'd be a really shitty judge. But you won't find rocks in my agapo tanks. I'm not even interested in looking at them. Nope, it's just not me. Besides, there's something far more compelling and, I don't know, romantic about leaves and seed pods and decomposing wood than there is about a bunch of rock, right? Maybe? Okay, don't answer that. <laughs> don't cry, rock lovers. Yes, there are plenty of Amazonian and other habitats with tinted water and rocks. And in the aquarium, we have many options to faithfully recreate or simply gain inspiration from these habitats. It's okay to use rock, really. I mean, it provides a unique and satisfying aesthetic experience for our aquariums while providing a nice contrast with wood and botanicals. Sure, the fact is some rock will impact the chemistry of your water, and if you're really hardcore about it, you'll have to do some experimentation. I played with the rocks that we've offered in the past in my tanks, and I can only say that they will typically impact the pH and GH a bit, and it's kind of why I got away from that stuff. To what extent is subject to many variables, ranging from the type of water you start with to the substrate you use. Um, Making generalizations is tricky and it's way outside of my pay grade, as they say. So experiment. As I always say, it's important to understand that, you know, we should not specifically limit ourselves to any one rigid way of thinking. We simply have to understand that rocks like botanicals or wood or anything else that we add to our aquariums impact the environmental characteristics of our closed systems. And that if we're trying to replicate these habitats, which don't typically have rocks in them, then to exclude them from our tanks makes even more sense, right? From a water chemistry aspect, if you're faithfully trying to recreate a highly acidic saltwater habitat devoid of rocks, then you'd probably want to avoid using rocks of any kind to any great extent, right? Duh. Okay, enough of this stuff already. I'm longing to talk more about something more exciting like leaves and stuff. 
Stay curious, stay resourceful, stay observant, stay creative, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.